This summer we're considering the life of David, and you can turn with your Bibles uh, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and then stick a finger in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's a story that uh, picks up sometime later, after it begins. We need to read 1 Samuel 5 as a little bit of background, or you can turn in your worship guide to page 11, where the scripture is printed as well uh, for your reading. And as you turn there, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now some two decades pass. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. With the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, 
How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The story, the story of David and the ark and the dance that happens around the ark is a story about coming into the presence of God and what it means to either pursue that or to be afraid of that. When I was in seminary, I had a friend who, frankly, was, was more godly than I was. You know, being in his presence was like tasting a little bit of the divine. He was someone who was further along that path. You might think, oh, I would press in with that friend. I would pursue him. I would say, you know, teach me what you know. But instead, over time, I find myself spending less time with that individual. Avoiding him. Putting him off on the side. Why would I want to enter that? And it because I felt convicted. I felt a little bit embarrassed, perhaps shame and guilt, that I wasn't as near to God as this individual was, and I didn't like that feeling. And rather than moving toward God, see, I knew that that might require for me to think about how I would approach God, perhaps to give up certain things that I didn't want to give up. And so I decided not to come into contact with that person and to put what represented to me as something of God's presence off to the side to remove it and to live safely at a distance from it. That's a terrible decision, but it's reflective of the ways in which we so often debate whether we really press into the presence of God to experience His holiness or whether we seek to create space between ourselves and God so that we would not touch the holy, so that we would not be consumed by God's presence. One road offers true joy, the other road offers a lot of disappointment. And at the front, I want to challenge you with the question that we're going to be challenged with at the end. The story, I believe, portrays that the picture of really pressing into the holiness of God, experiencing God, looks like the king of Israel stripping down to a linen garment and dancing recklessly before the Lord. Does that in any way, shape, or form describe your experience of God? And if not, then why not? Well, as we pursue what's before us and start to examine it, I hope that question will not only become clear in the setting of the story, but we'll wrestle with it a bit. First Samuel 5 is the background to what we read in Second Samuel 6. And the Philistines, who are uh, somewhat new people in the territory of Israel, are raiding and causing Israel much grief in ancient Palestine. And the ark that we're talking about, if you're not familiar with it, is the ark from Raiders of the Lost Ark fame. The small chest, right, that is uh, was designed by God and given to the people to hold uh, certain elements of holiness. And it is the most holy relic of Israel as a people. It was designed to be, to be housed in the innermost part of the tabernacle. And it was, uh, it was that on the very top of the ark between the cherubim was the very presence of God amongst his people. So we're talking about the primary representation of God's presence amongst his people in the time of Israel. 
and the Philistines capture it. Right now, put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Israelite. The thing that most represents the power of your God, His authority, His presence has departed from you. And that would have been a very big deal in the ancient world. Suddenly, your God, Yahweh, has been submitted to the Philistine God, Dagon. Dagon is stronger. Your God is weaker. Or perhaps he just doesn't care because he's departed. And as the, you see, the Philistines placed the ark before the god Dagon. It's, the idea would have been that Dagon absorbed the strength of Yahweh, which made the Philistine god even stronger. And so, it, it, you know, it's hard to overestimate. This would have been a um, kind of a worst-case scenario for Israel to experience that the Philistines would have captured this most holy relic, and representing the very presence of God amongst the people. Well, as the story goes on, and we don't have time to read all of the story, but in 1 Samuel, as the story goes on from what we read, it doesn't go very well for the Philistines. They come to regret their decision of stealing the ark. Right? Yahweh, who seems to be put in submission to Dagon, ends up toppling Dagon so that he lies face down before the ark of the covenant. That's why the Israels might have been wondering, well, is Yahweh really strong or not? Yahweh, the one true God, his strength topples the false idol. And if that didn't communicate clearly enough, they set him back up, and the next day he's toppled again. And this time God has severed his head and his arms, so only a trunk lies face down on the ground. The Philistines didn't necessarily get the message because they are afterwards inflicted with sores in their nether regions and a plague of mice, at which point they are very eager to return the ark to Israel. And so make a tribute and put the ark on a uh, uh, ox cart and send it back, and make they follow behind it and make sure that it gets back safely to the people of Israel. And Israel, you know, one day some Israelites are in the field, they look up, and here comes the ark of the covenant on an ox cart being returned to them. Israel didn't have to do anything. Yahweh didn't really need their help to get their ark back. Yahweh is demonstrating his power and his authority through this whole course of events. And so the Israelites, you can imagine, are ecstatic to receive the ark back. This is a reason for celebration. Yahweh is is strong. And they begin to suffer. And, um, or I'm sorry, they celebrate, but they don't think through how they're relating to the presence of God. This is a big question in the course of this passage. right? The ark, the presence of God, comes back to Israel, and they say, yes, let's celebrate. And they just leave it out in the open, something that was supposed to be enshrouded. And so everyone can look upon it. It makes it cheaper. It doesn't treat it with the reverence that it's been called to be treated with, and so 70 men are struck dead. Well, you can imagine how that let the steam out of that party But Israel's reaction in the midst of those 70 men being struck is this. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Do you hear what Israel is saying? The ark has come back, but the presence of God is unpredictable. His holiness in their midst is something that is dangerous. And so they decide, who who can stand in the presence of this God Let's find a place to drop it. Our life was a little bit more predictable and a little bit safer before we allowed the ark to come into our midst. And so they looked for the first place to unload it at the house of Eliezer. 
And isn't that a question and a situation that is always confronting the people of God? That as we are confronted or have the opportunity to engage the presence of God and His holiness, it is something that is unpredictable. It is something that is frightening. It is something that demands that we treat it with a certain amount of reverence and order our lives in a reverent way. And sometimes we feel like it is easier to simply put it at arm's length rather than to go through that process. So it says, well, you know, if people are going to be dropping dead, this is very complicated. Let's just put it over here. And they make such a sad decision to live with a false kind of proximity to God. Sure, we're worshipers of Yahweh. Do you really pursue His presence? No, we like the ark to be kept over there. It's a pseudo-relationship. It's artificial in a number of degrees. How do you put arm's length distance between yourself and the presence of God? It's something that we all do. I have a friend on the West Coast, a very good friend, who's a minister of his church, and he found himself during a season being really uh, struggling. He had taken the church... um, the church was going through some different bits of turmoil, and so it was a stressful situation to begin with. But as assuming, in assuming his first senior pastoral role, he started to face all these different challenges. And so he'd go into the office, and at 9 o'clock, he'd meet with someone, and a marriage was dissolving. And at 11 o'clock, he'd meet with someone else, and parents came in, and their, their child was going AWOL. And at 3 o'clock, he'd meet with someone else, and they'd sit down and talk, and uh, they had received some bad news, death in the family or bad news from a doctor. He thought, my goodness, well, let me pray with you. Let's be thankful for Jesus' ministry. Let's be thankful for God's presence in our lives. And then he would go home feeling so empty and so weary and so wondering, if all of these bad things are happening, is Yahweh really around? Does he really have the strength that he says he has? Or does he really care in the way that he says he cares? And that question, being scary, caused my friend to say, you know, that's just an uncomfortable place to be. And so instead of going down that road, say, you know what, I'm going to open a beer. And so a few weeks went by, and one beer was adequate, and then one beer became two. Two became three, and as the the challenge of feeling that God's presence was was not something that was really there, but also the challenge of walking into it and, and actually going into that pain and suffering of the people's lives and trusting that God's presence was there, despite the lack of evidence from his eyes, was something that was so daunting, he used alcohol to say, yep, arm's length. Let's keep a degree of distance between myself and the presence of God because entering into that presence is too dangerous. It's too unpredictable. It's too difficult. And so it's something, it's an illustration to you which you can, I hope, let me put it this way. If you can't identify a way in which you put distance between yourself and God, that's the problem. Because I guarantee there's a way in which you do that. My friend is doing uh, much better, by the way, but the illustration is to point up to you how do you prefer space than the actual presence of God? Israel ended up putting the ark away for 20 years. It sits at this place that they just drop it. 
And what's interesting about this story that happens in 1 Samuel as you uh, work through chapter 6 and then as you enter chapter 7, it sat there for 20 years. And the reality is that, that the space that people make between themselves and Yahweh, between themselves and God, has to be filled by something. Another way to say this or examine it would be this, that you can choose not to worship God, but you cannot choose to worship nothing. You are a worshiping being. That is the way you have been created. And so if you are not worshiping God, if you prefer space between yourself and Yahweh, something else will inevitably fill that space. And for Israel, that's exactly what happened. They put the ark, drop it for 20 years, and so 20 years go by. All of a sudden in chapter 7, Samuel shows up out of nowhere. Like, where's this guy been? And he says to the people of Israel uh, this. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. What's happened in the 20 years? Israel have become worshipers of foreign gods. The Ashtaroth and the other foreign gods that Samuel alludes to, the space that Israel sought to create that they thought would make them safe becomes filled with the worship of foreign gods, which only becomes destructive to them. They suffer more under the Philistines, finally repent because that very suffering under the Philistines caused them to be at a point where they start to lament their condition. And now it's time for God's presence to be reconsidered to be approached again, for foreign idols to be repented of. But do you see the gross irony in the, in the story? You know, Israel uh, is, is, are the worshipers. They pride themselves in being the worshipers of the, the one true God, Yahweh, and yet and critique the Philistines as worshiping a lesser God. And the ark is taken and the ark comes back. But at the end of the story, at least this portion, all we find Israel doing is the same as the Philistines were doing. Israel has become every bit as much an idolater and worship of foreign gods as the Philistines were. They have ceased, they've given up their identity as worshipers of Yahweh. Well, it's in this midst of this uh, reawakening, so to speak, that eventually David comes and seeks to reclaim the ark. He's finally ascending as king of Israel. It's been a long road by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It's a bold and big statement of God's presence residing and supporting His authority in the capital city, or what will be the capital city. And so they go, and of course there's celebration. Right? It's so interesting how each of these stories, when they start to approach the Ark of God, is characterized by rejoicing and celebration. They're giddy. But nobody's thinking about how God should be approached. Let's just approach God. Let's get the ark. Yay, good for us. And then something bad's going to happen because nobody's actually saying, how in the world should we approach the presence of the living God? If this is the most holy embodiment of His presence in our midst, how should we be contemplative about ourselves in bringing that presence into our midst? There are actually instructions for how to bring that presence into their midst, written down in the Mosaic Law, and yet the people are ignoring them. The law held that the ark should be carried by the Levites with poles on their shoulder that ran through rings on the corner of the arks, and the ark should be covered. And yet, as we begin to read in 2 Samuel 
chapter 6, that that's not what they do. Now, let's be spiffy. Let's make it a little bit easier. Let's make a new ox cart and have it drawn by oxen. And that's how we proceed. And as a result of this decision not to obey what God has revealed, but instead to do what they thought was best, the uh, oxen stumble, the ark tilts, it teeters as if it's going to fall, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark, and he drops dead. No human hand is supposed to touch this this thing of God. You You have the very awkward scene of one of the most sinful things in all of creation coming into contact with one of the most holy things in all of creation. And yet, always, there's been a little bit of me, whenever I've read this story, you know, I say, really? God, you know, whatever happened to uh, honoring good intentions? It seems a bit severe. Did Uzzah really have to die? But if you start to think about it a little bit, what if God didn't do anything? What if he didn't draw lines and he didn't punish? And he just let it go. Oh, that Uzzah. Careless as always. We'll get it right eventually. People would learn much about his holiness or learn about what it means to approach God with reverence. You don't hesitate to discipline your child in a serious way if they're reaching for a hot element on a stove. Why? Because you love them and are for them and don't want them to be hurt and burned. I think we need to recognize that the presence of God, His holiness, is a thousand times more dangerous than a hot element on a stove. And would He be loving if He did not require us to begin to learn that that is dangerous? and that it is best for us to approach it from a certain posture of reverence and fear and respect for His holiness? If it wasn't, He wouldn't seem like much of a God. David's reaction is uh, is wonderfully honest. He's angry in verse 8. Right? But he's not, you know, anger is what's coming after what is revealed in verse 9, which is fear. Whoa, I thought I'm the chosen one to be king over Israel and that God has favored me and we were bringing the ark into Jerusalem and this was a good idea. Now I don't know what to do. God has again shown himself to be unpredictable. I'm not sure what it means to be in his presence. And so in verse 9, David asks, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can I have a relationship with this kind of God? This is dangerous. And he makes the same error as the Israelites did 20 years ago. He says, I have a choice of figuring out what it means to press into the presence of God in an appropriate way, or I can create arm's distance between myself and the presence of God. And David looks up, he says, who's that house? Who who owns that house? Obedidim. Drop the ark there. We're going back to the city of David. He says, it's not worth it. I'm not going to press into the presence of God. It's crazy. And so he goes, but part of David knows, I think, that the ark would be, the presence of God is blessing. Right? That's why I wanted to bring it into Jerusalem. At least part of the reason he wanted to bring it into Jerusalem in the first place. And so three months go by, the ark's sitting at a foreigner's house, and the foreigner's house is ridiculously blessed. Right? And David hears, listen, things are going really well for Obed-Edom. You might want to reconsider bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And David says, oh, okay. And rethinks uh, his approach and 
This time they, they go again. And they treat the presence of God this time with reverence. Notice that they go and the ark is being carried. It's not on an ox cart. And it'll be set up in a tent where it can be shrouded and treated with reverence. But you can feel the tension, right? They wait for, for, the, for the Levites who are carrying the ark to go six steps, right? Can you imagine how, who got to be that Levite, right? Drawing straws. So after Uzzah's been struck dead, you show up three months later and like, all right, we need four Levites to carry the ark. Volunteers? I don't think anyone would probably step forward to. Or perhaps they did. Perhaps the Levites understand the law said, yes, let's bring it in in the appropriate way. And so they go six steps, and having made it six steps, they, there's a large exhalation, and they celebrate. Ridiculously, they begin to understand what is the joy of being in God's presence when they approach it with reverence and with holiness. And you know, in some ways I feel as though I'm, I'm just figuring this out. Imagine at 40. That the default mode of any believer is to hold God at arm's length. Because he is dangerous. He's unpredictable. He calls upon us to engage in things that we don't want to do and to change our hearts and to cut away our old selves in ways that are terribly uncomfortable. And so it's easy, God, I'm going to, arm's length is more comfortable. And yet you look at the story of David, and when the ark comes in, you know, they realize that they've approached it with reverence, that the blessing will occur. David is overwhelmed with joy, right? He is overwhelmed to the extent, can you imagine? I was tempted to say, you know, if I was really going to enact and communicate the joy that David possesses in this passage, I should really undress and start to dance. But given that that would largely be a significant distraction, horror is on some of your faces, um, right? But this uh, this passage is something that many many people who wrestle with the Bible over the years have had trouble with. It's just uncomfortable. They don't like to think of a king in this role, let alone someone who honors God. And yet I would hold out to you that David is actually the one who understands the presence of God that having entered into it with reverence and knowing its blessing, he is overwhelmed. And he is so longing then to be utterly vulnerable before God that everything else recedes into the background. And he's so consumed with joy that this is the outpouring of his joy. And in that, that's something that you and I pine for. right? That we would experience joy in that capacity that our hearts would be so overflowing with the presence of God approached in the right way that you would have to hold us down that we wouldn't dance in passion for Him. That's what it means to not hold, to figure out for you, what do I put in between myself and God to hold Him at arm's length so that I really do not have to do business with His presence? When you begin to remove that and walk into those hard places that you're afraid of, the result ultimately is the joy of David. When you do not, the result is the contempt of Michal. You notice that Michal, the daughter of Saul, is married David, cannot process what she sees David doing. It's too unbecoming. A king shouldn't be acting in that way. Look at you. Want to be popular amongst the servant girls? And David says, no, you don't understand. God chose me because... 
he knew that he would lead me to a place where I get this, and your dad never got it. And the servant girls, they get it too. Because they don't have the things that you do standing in the way between themselves and God and long for His presence and entering into it. They know the joy that's dispersed among the people. But Mikhail, because she has so many things between herself and God's presence, has nothing but, she can't do anything but despise David. Really not too dissimilar from the way that I would avoid my friend in seminary. I didn't want to be in the presence of that. Because it was too convicting. Because it was too challenging. And so David, not, or Mikhail, not only puts arm's length between herself and God, but she puts her arm's length between herself and David. And some of you in your marriage, you know that because your spouse challenges you in ways that you feel more comfortable keeping him or her at arm's length. Friends, the joy that is offered it to us this morning is the joy of leaping and dancing in the presence of God. But what it requires of you is that you you weigh in, you press in, you long for that presence to the degree that the things that you have established and hold dear that keep a comfortable buffer between yourself and God, like beer did for my friend who was overwhelmed in ministry, it's only when those things are given up that you know what is the dance of David. Let's pray. Father, we praise You this morning. We thank You that You alone are God. And that You are strong. Uh, Idols like Dagon topple before You. Idols today, control and power and lust and money, they topple before You as well. But we being foolish creatures, often... Uh, are afraid of you. And in one sense, well, we should be. But we pray, Father, this morning that we would remember your love for us in Christ. And in that, we would not be afraid to undo the things that we put between ourselves and your presence. And in doing so, we ask that your Spirit would be upon us and we would know the joy that David knew. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.